three, we are doing a part two to last week's part one. We're studying through ch uh, chapters two and three only of the book of Revelation, although in our introduction we looked at chapter some parts of chapter one as well. Uh, it's, it's this sequence of seven letters to the seven churches that were near, geographically near to where the Apostle John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. And the Lord, as he appeared to John in chapter one, had directed him to send letters, individual letters from the Lord himself, not just from John, letters from the Lord to these seven churches. And these are all evaluation letters. The, the setting, the context, remember, is an image in the vision that the Lord gave John in chapter one of, of revealing himself as the new covenant heavenly high priest just like the high priest in the old covenant walked daily in the temple precincts among the lampstands within the temple evaluating them to to see if they needed to be filled with oil to see if their their wicks needed to be trimmed in order to uh, cause the light of the lampstands to burn as brightly as possible and then at the end of that vision the lord identified clearly for john's sake and for ours through john that the lampstands are symbolic references to churches. Each lampstand represents an individual church. And so now he's writing these seven letters and functioning in that way. He's, he's encouraging them where they need to be encouraged, filling them up with oil, and he's correcting them and disciplining them where they need to be corrected and disciplined, and in doing so is like trimming their wicks. And our key, our key uh, line in each one of these seven letters, because they all follow a similar pattern, is the line here in this letter to the, the seventh church in verse 22 of chapter three. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what we see from that is, yes, this is a specific letter for that specific congregation in their moment of history, in their cultural situation, in their current spiritual condition, but, there's something for us to learn from how the Lord was speaking to them. It doesn't mean we will find identical connections between these seven churches and us as a church, but it does mean there's something for us to learn from how the Lord speaks and addresses each one of these seven. Now this letter is a longer one of the seven. It's significant in several different ways. So we did a whole study on the first part of this letter last time. Uh, let me reread the entire letter. I'll just briefly touch on what we covered last week and then we'll try to finish this letter today. Verse 14 of Revelation 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so in our last study last week, we saw that the, the, the basic evaluation that the Lord gave of this church was not a good one. It wasn't, there wasn't anything praiseworthy that the Lord had to say. In all of the other six letters to the other six churches, there was at least some one thing that the Lord had to say that was commendable. Uh, there was nothing to this church, not a single commendable word that he spoke. And he, uh, as he did with each one of the seven churches, he spoke to them in the context of their own cultural familiarity, their own social situation, so to speak, in the society that they lived in. He used elements from the city in which they lived to highlight their true spiritual condition. And in the case of the Laodiceans, he chose to use the circumstance of their water problem in the city. Big problem in the city, which was there was no natural source of water there in the city. All the water for the city had to be piped in from elsewhere. And uh, in this case, he was comparing them to two sister cities, one which had hot mineral water that was known far and wide for its healing, restorative properties, and another city, Colossae, which was known for its cold, refreshing mountain spring water. And he's saying, I wish that you were like either of these other two cities. I wish you were useful for healing and restorative purposes, like hot water, or I wish you were useful for refreshment and that kind of recharging of a person's batteries when they get a, a nice cold drink of water. But you're neither restorative in either way. You're not being useful or helpful in my kingdom either in a hot way or a cold way. Instead, you're lukewarm. The water that arrived in the city arrived in a lukewarm state and it had this mineral, high mineral content that caused people who drank it for drinking water to have kind of a uh, regurgitive response. And so the Lord uses that imagery to say, uh, because you are like this lukewarm water that uh, doesn't sit well in the stomach, I'm going to vomit you, spew you, spit you out of my mouth. Now, when you hear the Lord saying that to a church, that's not a good, that's not a good communication. So from there, we're going to pick up now with how the Lord addresses them. Um, I want to, I want to, a tag on to where we ended last time, which is in verse 17. For you say, this is connected to them being lukewarm. Their, their, their spiritual uselessness was tied to something. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Remember, of the seven cities, this was the richest of the seven cities. And the church, as a result, was the richest, richest of the seven churches rich in natural financial resources, but impoverished spiritually at the same time. 
And because of their riches, they had become arrogantly independent of the Lord. They no longer felt they had any great need of the Lord to intervene in their circumstances because they had it made in the shade, so to speak, in terms of their circumstance. And so because of that, um, the Lord is addressing what got them into this present condition. And what got them into this present condition as a couple of three of the other churches that he's already addressed, there had been spiritual compromise, kind of a, a compromise in order to be able to continue to do business in the city. Remember, all of the business was organized under imperial guilds. And in order to be a guild member in good standing for the various industries in the city, you had to be willing to acknowledge publicly that Caesar is Lord. And Jesus required his people to main, remain true and faithful to him in their allegiance and to say publicly, Jesus is Lord, which these are two competing declarations and they can't be blended together. But the Laodiceans were attempting to blend them together. So now in verse 18, how is the Lord going to address this huge problem in the church? It's interesting in verse 18, he says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. And then he goes on to talk about not just gold, but about white garments and then about eye salve. We'll talk about those three connection points, gold, garments, and eye salve in just a moment. But first, I just wanna highlight how the Lord chooses to redirect them and how at different moments in our walk with the Lord, the Lord will speak to us differently and only he knows exactly how to do this. Now, I've been a, a pastor, a, a pastor shepherd for 35 years now. Uh, this is part of the reason, as I mentioned, that we were doing this particular series of studies because we've just as a church passed a certain anniversary, 35 years as a church, which also is 35 years for myself as a pastor. And I've learned a lot as a pastor in 35 years. I've learned a lot about the challenge of shepherding God's people. And it is, I will just tell you this, I don't care what anybody tells you. Otherwise, this is the truth. This is the hardest job in the world. Now it's the best job in the world, don't get me wrong. I love this work and I would not trade it for anything, but it is the hardest job in the world. Why? Because of you. the sheep, the people of God. If you were already perfected, if you were already fully conformed to the image of Christ, this would be the easiest job in the world. Well, so what does that imply? It implies you're not there yet. Neither am I, but, but because you're not there yet, and it's my responsibility, along with the other shepherds of the church, to help you get there, it is so challenging and so difficult to do that. And at times, it requires me to speak to different members of the church, but I have to be wise and I have to be discerning and I have to be discreet and I have to figure out by the grace of God how to speak in each situation. Do I speak with a, a soft and warm and encouraging tone or do I speak with a, a firm and, and disciplinary tone? Well, it depends, right? It depends on what that person's heart needs in that moment. It depends on which key is going to unlock that specific lock on that heart. Well, 
I'm still learning this even after 35 years and I haven't always done it just right. There are moments when I have, but by the grace of God, but there are many moments when I haven't. The Lord though knows exactly when and how to speak to his people. And he does so here. He could have spoken to them in what tone? Oh, he could have come down heavy and hard on them. Now he does speak very bluntly in this letter to them. He speaks very truthfully, but it's a hard truth for them to swallow. But how he speaks to them when it comes time to change them. It's just interesting to me. In verse 18, what does he say? I counsel you. Now what is counsel and how is that different from rebuke? How is that different from command? How is that different from, uh, you know, hard case, I'm jumping on your case kind of uh, shepherding? Counsel is when you're counseling someone, you are, you're recommending new and different attitude, new and different perspective, new and different ultimately conduct or behavior. You're, you're trying to bring about a change in them, but you're also aware that they're probably not going to be open to changing. So how do you handle that? He had the right. He's the Lord. He, this is his church. He had the right to speak to them as strongly as he wanted to, but he chose in this moment to take a half step back and offer them counsel. I, and I would just say this, what does this speak to us? There are times, you know, you may not be unhealthy like the Laodiceans. This church may not be unhealthy like the Laodiceans. But there are times when the Lord will counsel an entire church. And there are times when the Lord will counsel an individual believer when they're in a key moment in their walk with the Lord. The question when you receive counsel is always what? And, and we're just assuming in this case, because it's the Lord as the counselor, it's probably pretty good counsel. It's probably exactly what you should be paying attention to. It's probably exactly how and where and why you need to change. If it's the Lord as the counselor, he's never once offered even less than the best counsel. But there's a requirement when you receive counsel, which is, and I... I Listen, I've been doing this for 35 years in terms of counseling. I'm not talking about teaching like I'm doing right now. I'm talking about like in my office or in your living room in many cases or, or out in the parking lot of the church. And there are many, many, many times I've counseled folks in the church. And every single time I do as I walk away from those encounters, there's always the question in my mind, are they going to listen? And will they embrace the truth that I'm convinced I just communicated to them? And are they willing to take it to heart and change? Or will they be stubborn and say, no, I'm not changing. I'm quite fine with where I'm at. I will just say this. He's counseling this church. What comes after counsel that's disregarded? What comes after counsel? And that's disregarded. It, what comes next is the Lord has to up the ante at some point. If, if he doesn't want you to continue down a pathway that's only unhealthy to you and is only going to end in heartache for you and for those that you're connected to. Now, in the case of the church, you're connected to the body 
And so it's super important because the Lord has an investment in the health and welfare of his body. So it just caught my my attention. I've I've read this a hundred times, more than a hundred times. But this time preparing for the study, that word counsel just really jumped out and grabbed my attention. I wanted to bring it to your attention too. Listen when the Lord counsels you. He may counsel you through me. He may counsel you through one of the other shepherds of the church. He may counsel you through a, a, a mature brother or sister that cares for you, that's interested in you, that, that, that wants the best for you. He may counsel you during the time of worship when the, the lyrics of the song are speaking to your heart. He may counsel you during this Bible study. There's all kinds of different ways the Lord will offer counsel to you. All, I, all I'm concerned about this morning is when you know the Lord is speaking a word of counsel to you, don't disregard it. Take it to heart. All right, so what is it that the Lord counseled them? He counseled them three things. And all of them are introduced by this phrase, buy from me. He says this, I counsel you to buy from me. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to businessmen. Remember, this church was rich. They did lots and lots of business in the city and they were willing to make all kinds of compromises in order to keep that, that uh, income flowing into their lives. Buying and selling. Now the Lord comes to them as a vendor, a spiritual vendor. And he says, this is what I counsel, buy from me. You've been buying in order to line your pockets from all others who are requiring all kinds of different compromises in order to keep that money flowing. Here's what I counsel you, do business with me. So I I would just say this, this is the takeaway for us. There is one business you will do in this world and in this life that's more important than any other business you will ever uh, give your attention to. That's the business you do with the Lord and the business he intends to do with you. But notice this, He's, he's like saying, I'm like a vendor who's right here ready to do business with you, but buy from me. That, that implies you gotta be willing to shop. You gotta be willing to actually seek him for that business interaction. And if you're not asking to buy from him, he's not going to force the sale on you. Buy from me. Now, and, and I would just say this, there's goods and services that this vendor the Lord himself, offers that no earthly vendor can ever provide for you. What is it there to buy? He recommends that they buy three things from him. How many of you uh, go to the store to shop? I'm talking about the grocery store. Like in our household, I'm the grocery store guy. Let me see the hands of the grocery store people. Okay, do you use a list when you go to the store? You just kind of go up and down the aisles and just like, whatever looks good to you, you buy it. Do you use a list? Most of you, both, well, both is okay. Um, but you gotta have a list at least, right? Oh, so many times I've gone to the store when I forgot to look at the list and I came home and Cindy said, okay, well, where was the, you know, where's the head of cabbage? The other day she asked me to go to the store for a head of cabbage. I went to the store, I bought everything else except a head of cabbage. Because I didn't look at the list. It was a short list, it only had two things on it. <laughs> I said to myself, before I drove to the store, I said to myself, there's no way I can, no way I can forget two things. I went into the store, I got one, the first thing on the list, cabbage was the second thing. 
and I got the first thing and three other or four other things and totally didn't even think of cabbage the whole time I was in the store. So the Lord here gives them a shopping list. This is his recommendation. Remember, it's counsel. You come to my store and buy these three things from me. He just happens to highlight the three main industries in the city. The three main industries in the city, you might remember from last week, were banking, garment industry, and an, a, a, a medical school that was known far and, wide, far and wide for treating ears and eyes. And so what does he say in the context of banking? He's saying, buy gold from me. They've been, their priority has been to acquire gold from all of their guild interactions natural physical gold and, and listen i am not a an opponent of owning and possessing natural physical gold if you can get some natural physical gold especially in the circumstances of our economy today and the possibilities of where it's heading i would recommend that you sit on some natural physical gold and silver but here what does the lord say they've been so focused on natural gold that they've forgotten about the spiritual gold he says buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. They thought they were rich because they had natural gold, but they had none of the spiritual gold at this point or precious little of it. What is gold refined by fire? Keep your place in Revelation. I'll just read this reference from 1 Peter chapter one to explain the gold refined reference that the Lord makes. 1 Peter chapter one verse 6 in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested that's refined by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of jesus christ Gold refined by fire is genuine faith from a spiritual perspective. They had lost genuine faith. Genuine faith changes you. Gen is there, there's, there's faith and then there's genuine faith. Real saving faith changes you. It makes him, the one who saved you, your first priority in life. Always. He's the most important thing. He's the most important relationship. He's the one that you do business with before you do business with anyone or anything else. And that they had lost. And so he's, he's counseling them. Come to my store. You're out of genuine faith. It's time to purchase some more. Not in the sense that we can by our good works purchase genuine faith, but just by the desire of our heart recognizing that I've drifted from that expression of genuine faith in my relationship with him to come to him and appeal to him and say, Lord, I need what only you can provide. And then he says, also purchase white garments so that the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. In all of the Old Testament, there were many times when people were stripped naked. Uh, 
not for um, sensual purposes, but for, for uh, consequential purposes of sin in which they were shamed, publicly shamed because of uh, the sin that had brought them to such a shameful condition. Starting all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first crossed the line that they should never have crossed and then suddenly they came to this new awareness that they were naked and ashamed in the presence of the Lord. And here the Lord says, I counsel you to come to my clothing store and buy a garment from me. The garment that you'll get from me is a white garment. He's contrasting it here with the famous garments that were produced in the city that were made of this special luxurious black wool grown from the sheep in that region. The sheep in that region were black. Uh, they had black wool and it was famous for that. And they were woven into some very prized and valuable garments that were, that were uh, valued all the way to the capital city of Rome. And here the Lord says, uh, you've been focusing all your attention on, on producing these black garments. And instead, what you need to focus on is to uh, get from me, to, to purchase from me, a white garment. What's the white garment all about? Uh, let's fast forward to chapter 19 for just a moment, which makes a specific reference to this. Chapter 19, verse 8. In fact, I'll read 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. This is a scene in heaven, by the way. Like the sound of many mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her, the bride, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. His point with the Laodiceans is you filled your life up with deeds, but they're not righteous ones. They're going to be like those deeds that Paul described on the day of judgment for believers will be evaluated by the fiery evaluation of the Lord on that day. And it will turn out that they were nothing but like wood, hay and stubble. And they'll be burned up in that evaluation having and holding no eternal value. But these white garments composed or woven by threads of righteousness, the Lord's influence in their life prioritizing the service to him and to his kingdom, to his name, that will hold eternal value. And then the third and final word of counsel in terms of purchasing from him, buying from him, doing business from him, is he says, purchase for me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Remember this medical school there was an industry not just to come to the school, but people came from far and wide to buy this, this special salve. It was known as Phrygian salve. And um, you know, there were people that with eye problems were to put it on their eyelids and it was supposed to, supposed to uh, alleviate any problems with the eyes. And the Lord says here, um, you know, the reality is you're spiritually blind and you don't even realize it. You think you see, but you see nothing. You see nothing in the way that you should see. They're seen, but they're seen with natural perspective. They're not seen from the Lord's perspective. He sees them very differently than they see themselves. He's urging them 
to get this spiritual salve from him, which is going to enable them to now see themselves as he sees them, which is a precursor to any needed and necessary change. Being restored to the Lord's viewpoint is one of the great blessings we can ever experience in our walk with him. All right, the letter continues now in verse 19 with this declaration by the Lord of explanation. He's explaining to them why he's speaking to them in the way that he's speaking to them. As gentle as it is, it's still a stinging rebuke. You know, he is is gentle in in the sense that what he's saying is counsel but it's stinging in the sense of how, how it addresses the disease that's in their heart and how they desperately need to change. He says in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Um, how many of you here want the Lord to love you compared to the alternative? Not that he wouldn't necessarily hate you, but just he doesn't really care about you that much. But you would want the Lord to love you, wouldn't you? How much do you want him to love you? A lot. I, I, want, I want the Lord to love me a lot. But when, you, when you're loved by the Lord a lot, it, it's part of a package deal. What comes with that love, because he is a perfect parent in this relationship, And a perfect parent perfectly disciplines those that are loved by that parent. Um, You know, there are some parents, and I'm I'm not addressing anybody here, but there are some parents in the world, they bring children in the world, and they don't love their children really. And so they don't really care how their children turn out because they don't really care how their children turn out. They don't really give all of the attention that's necessary the regular, consistent, faithful attention that's necessary in order to ensure that their children will grow up to be the kind of adults that they should be. But the Lord's not like that. When he brings someone into the world, spiritually speaking, through the new birth, he is 100% committed to ensuring you turn out the way he wants you to turn out. But what comes with that is, as many as I love, or those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Now, what's interesting, there's a couple of details here. What word would you expect the Lord to use when he says, as many as I love? What kind of love do you think the Lord is talking about? What we might expect is the famous Greek word for love. David's taught on it several times recently, agape love, right? That self-sacrificial, other-centered love. As many as I love with this agape God kind of love. That's not the word he uses here. Interesting. What word does he use? He uses a different Greek word, phileo, and it it describes friendship love. Friendship love. Now the love, the Lord, those who belong to him, he does love you with agape love. He can't help it. He is agape. And if you're in relationship with him, father to child, he loves you with agape love. But here he wants you to know he also wants to love you with phileo love, friendship love. You know, there are certain individuals, I wish I had time, we don't, but there are individuals in Old Testament history that the Lord identified as his friend. To be a friend of the Lord. There's a, I, years ago, I was blessed to do for the men's 
a breakfast group. I was blessed to do a study through the life of King David. And there's one really poignant scene toward the end of King David's life as, the, as he's sitting in the tabernacle of the Lord in a place that no other was allowed to sit, which is in the house of the Lord. Remember, there was no seat in the house of the Lord other than the Ark of the Covenant. And David had brought a chair into the tabernacle and was sitting down in the presence of the Lord. Normally, someone who dared to sit in the presence of the Lord would be judged by the Lord, but the Lord welcomed him. Why? He was friends with the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. He, they, they had a, a, a special, deeper relationship, a connected relationship of what, what makes for friends. Who are you friends with? You're friends with people that you Say the word, like. The Lord loves all of us if we belong to him. He doesn't like all of us. Yeah, that's, someone said what? Yeah, that's, that's what you should say, what? I will say it again. The Lord loves us all with agape love. He doesn't like all of us in the same way. John the apostle the one leaning on his, on his chest at the Last Supper is described by John himself, by the way, as the disciple whom he loved. What does that imply about the rest of them? <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> Look, why? The Lord's a real person. I would just tell you this right now. I'm, I'm not naming names. I don't want to get anybody upset with me. I like some of you better than I like others of you. What? Yes. <laughs> It's real, it's true. Why? Because I'm a person. So we, we make friends with people that we have like interests in. Or we share a hobby together, or we share an activity together, or we share an experience together. And those things bond us to each other. They form connections deeper than people that are strangers to us. Here, the Lord wants to be a friend to his people. And he says, those that I have this friendship love in my heart toward that I want to have this kind of relationship with, but they're not responding to me in that way. This church was not responding to him with that kind of friendship love. So what does he do? He rebukes and he disciplines them. To rebuke means, or reprove means to admonish, to tell a person their fault when they're at fault, and to rebuke them. And to discipline is referring to or describing remedial child training. Where you, you, you know, that child is not acting the way they should. They don't have the attitude that they should. Or they're not, they're not, they're not acting with the perspective that they should. So I'm going to apply pressure to their life to change them. Now that, the, the expression of discipline, the expression of that pressure can take all kinds of different forms from the, the lightest to the most severe, the most severe being spanking. But the idea being they need some pressure in order to change. That's what was going on with, with this group. Now, I don't have time to read it this morning, but for those who are taking notes, who, those who wanna meditate on this, think a little bit more about this, which by the way, should be everyone in this room, I would recommend that you read this week to come. Don't wait until Thursday. Maybe do this tomorrow morning for your devotional time. Read Hebrews chapter 12, verses five through 11, where the Lord describes in much more detail the nature of this disciplinary 
kind of reproving kind of relationship with those that he loves as the best parent that has ever existed. So he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, in other words, that requires a response of us. We should do something with that knowledge, with that understanding. So, be zealous and repent. Now the repent, we, we should all immediately understand that and connect with it. Of course the Lord is calling them to repent. They needed to repent. And there are times when the Lord will call us to repent when we need to repent. But I wanna emphasize this time, focus on how he connects it to repentance. Be zealous and repent. What does it mean to be zealous? It means to be super motivated. Like if you see the Israelis and the Palestinians going at each other right now, both sides are zealous in their own perspective. Or if you see a, a football game, like college, I watched some college football yesterday. It's a little bit different than pro football. Pro football, the fans, they, they, you know, they don't really care about what's going on. I mean, other than they wanna be able to say at the water cooler the next day, hey, you know, my team won. College football, it's weird, it's strange. It's almost like two tribes at war with each other. And they are zealous and they are chanting and standing on their feet the entire game. He's saying, take that kind of heart perspective into this need to change. Be highly motivated to change when the Lord puts his finger on an area of your life and says, it's time to change this. Don't disregard it. Don't say, okay, yeah, you're right. Lord, I need to change that. I'll, I'll, let me look at my calendar. Let me see what my schedule will allow. I'll get to that a week from Friday. The other thing I see in this, be zealous and repent. Whenever the Lord says to his people, repent, that is him being gracious. He's saying, if you don't, there's consequences that are heading your direction. But because he's saying repent, the consequences haven't arrived yet. And the repentance can interrupt the consequence. It can change the course of what you're going to experience for the better. It's always a gracious and merciful thing when the Lord says to you, it's time to repent rather than just hitting you with the discipline out of the blue. Now, how does the Lord end the letter? He says, he gives them an image. It's a famous image. I know we're all familiar with it. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Okay, so this image, I, I, I've done an entire teaching on this before, but it was years ago. Let me just briefly cover it. There's two interpretations of this image. There's the right one and the wrong one. Which would you like? <laughs> the wrong one is this. Christ is pictured here. This is the wrong understanding. Christ is pictured as standing at the door of the unbelieving sinner's heart, someone that doesn't even know the Lord. And he's knocking at the door of their heart. There was a famous painting uh, called Christ at, at the heart's door. 
that was painted back in the 1800s and you still see images of this online. Um, and it pictures Christ to stand at the door knocking and the, in, uh, if you look carefully at the door, there's no handle on the outside of the door. It implies the door can only be opened on the inside. And the image is one of the Lord is a gentleman in salvation and, and he offers salvation to people and if they'll open the door to him, then they'll get saved. And if they don't, well, they just miss out and they don't get saved. Um, that is just so completely and totally off base in terms of the picture of how we got saved. Uh, I've shared this before, but I'll just say it again. When it came time for the Lord to save me, he came to the door of my heart and like a SWAT team, he kicked the door down and marched in and saved me. I was never gonna open the door to him. If he was waiting for me to open the door, I'd still not be saved today. This is not a word to the unsaved at all. This is actually Christ knocking at the door of the church. And it's a tragic image. It's a sad image. It's, a, it's really a... It's a, it's a terrible image. It's, it, imagine this morning, like we're doing, we've had our whole service, we're right at the end of the service now, and just imagine Jesus standing just outside the church saying, hey, guys, let me in. It's just, it's like we're doing everything that we're doing, but it's empty and meaningless because he's on the outside and we're on the inside. And we think everything we're doing is great, but he is not part of any of it because he's outside the church. He's outside of fellowship. It's like we closed him out because what he requires of them in this circumstance is more than they're willing to give up. So the context here is the Lord wanted this friendship relationship with them and he was offering it to them by knocking on the door. He is somewhat gentlemanly in our saved relationship with him. Because now that we know him, we do have options. The option every day is, I, you know, he, he's either the most important thing in my life or he's not. He's either my heart priority or he's not. And I make that choice on a daily basis in terms of what I do. The best gauge for me, and, and this may be the best for you as well, is what do I wanna do first thing when I wake up in the morning? Well, I just, I'll be honest with you. The first thing I wanna do when I wake up in the morning is get a cup of coffee. Yeah. But after that, what's my first concern? You know, do I need to go online and check, you know, the social media? Do I need to check the news? Do I need to check what's going on in the world? You know, do I need to read about the Lakers? Do I need to read about the Cowboys? You know, those are things that are important to me. Or is my heart inclined toward him? And that's really what this I'm standing at the door knocking imagery is all about. I, I love that the Lord says this. He's been shut out of the church, but he says this to them. If you'll open it to me, I will come in and eat with you and, and, and you with me. There's, there's this still, as unhealthy as this church was, there's still the possibility of restored full relationship with him. And I love this about the Lord. He does not hold grudges. Even if I shut him out of my life or shut him out of the church, if, I, if he knocks and I open with, with the right heart of humility and repentance, then he is not going to say, well, you shut me out. I have no way I'm coming into your, your place, your life, your church. I, I love that he's still willing to restore full relationship with them. Uh, he ends the letter with this promise of hope. The one who conquers 
I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. The conquering here is simply, you conquer in this case by not compromising with the culture around you and putting him first in your life. That's what he's calling the Laodiceans to do. That's what the whole letter's about. If you do, he promises, I, you will sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is a, a promise of unbelievably awesome royal privilege. Listen, I don't know to what degree he means this literally or just symbolically and spiritually, but just the idea that I could sit down on the Lord's throne with him if I simply humbly open the door that I previously closed to him and welcome him more fully into my life is just one of the most awesome promises anywhere in God's word. And then this final exhortation, ending this seventh letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for these seven letters. I want to thank you. I believe, I believe you stirred my heart uh, a few weeks back uh, when we uh, crossed our 35th anniversary to uh, shift our focus to these seven letters now that we've gone through them. I pray that we would gain the benefits that you intended us to gain and that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and that we would hear responsively, we would hear faithfully, we would hear obediently, and we would hear humbly. And where needed, we would hear with appropriate repentance and zeal attached to it. I thank you for your grace upon our hearts uh, as we sit down at fellowship with you and have the hope and the promise of sitting down with you on your throne one day. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.